Well, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Well, you know why, don't you? You also know he's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Because you know what? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good. Be good, for goodness sake. That song was sung for the first time on Eddie Cantor's radio show in November of 1934. It became an instant hit with 100,000 orders for sheet music and 30,000 records were sold within 24 hours. By Christmas of that year, 400,000 records had been sold. It was one of the biggest hits in American history. Since then, the song has been covered by Bing Crosby, the Andrews Sisters, Frank Sinatra, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Beach Boys, the Jackson Five, the Carpenters, Neil Diamond, Mariah Carey, George Strait, Miley Cyrus, Andrea Bocelli, Love Handle from Phineas and Ferb, no less, Justin Bieber, Michael Blue and Pentatonix. That is not an exhaustive list. Believe me, there are so many more who have recorded this song. So think of the millions and millions of people who have heard the song, sung the song, and memorized every word of it. Think of the impact that the message of that song has had as it has repeatedly traveled by neurotransmission over those synapses in our brains. The one who sees all when you're sleeping and when you're awake. The one who knows all when you've been bad and when you've been good. He rewards the good and the nice, but the naughty are sent away empty-handed. So for goodness sake, be good. Now the irony of this, or probably better called the tragedy of it, is this song is sung during the Christmas season, the time that we celebrate the coming of the gospel-bringing Jesus. The gospel that tells us you can't be good enough. For God's sake, believe you can't be good enough. We sing this song when scripture tells us that the naughty, the sinners, they were the ones who drew near to Jesus and Jesus received them. So our message, yours and mine, while we wait for Christ to return, must not be, be good. The message for us during Advent and to every season of the year must be repent. Because when we repent, then we will be prepared for the Lord's return. We prepare ourselves by being repentant. That's our message, and that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we come to our scripture passage, which is Matthew chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you, I would ask you to turn first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized him, baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we call on you once again because we need you. We need you to open our eyes to see truth and our ears to hear truth, our minds to understand that truth. And we need you to soften our hearts, Lord, so that your truth can penetrate them and so that we can be transformed people, changed people, more the people that you've called us to be, doing more and more what you've called us to do. So once again, we submit ourselves to you now at this time and to the authority of your word, asking you to do great things in us and through us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If you will, look with me again in verse 1 of this passage. Because here in this verse, Matthew is reminiscing when he says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. But Matthew doesn't describe those days for us. It's, It's an empty word. What were those days like? What had been happening for the last 30 years? 30 years have passed. Since that angel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and told Zechariah that though he and his wife Elizabeth were well advanced in years, it didn't matter. They were going to have a baby. Thirty years have passed since that star shone over the stable in Bethlehem. Thirty years have passed since the angels lit up the night sky, saying glory to God in the highest. We know that those days were exciting dramatic. But then nothing happened. At least nothing that we're told. 30 years. Are the shepherds still alive? If they are alive, are they old men? Are they middle-aged men? And what did they do after they went and saw the baby Jesus and then spread the news about his birth? Are the wise men dead? Herod is. Joseph is. Does anybody even remember that star that shone all those years ago? Do they still talk about it? Some might. 
Maybe all of them do. Perhaps for these 30 years, they've been people of quiet yet fervent faith while they wait for something to happen. Or possibly not. Maybe they're a little red-faced that they got all excited for nothing. Or maybe they're just sad. Like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus the day Easter Sunday. Jesus was dead. They didn't know he had risen to life. And so they were sad and their faces were downcast. And they said, we had hoped he was the one, but well, I, I guess he wasn't. Add 30 years to your life right now. Add 30 years to your life. Now, for most of you in this room, that's more than your lifetime, 30 years. For others of you, you know, you've lived a little bit longer, but your conscious memory doesn't really go back 30 years. But add 30 years to your life. What would you do if in the span of that time, nothing, no spiritual drama had occurred, nothing big and exciting that you could stand up and tell a group of people, this is what the Lord did. How strong would your faith be if you saw a star and then 30 years passed and nothing? If angels sang, 30 years, nothing. I'm just saying that while we wait for the return of the Lord, it isn't drama that we should seek. It's not drama. No doubt God can and does do dramatic things for sure. But whatever else he may do in your life, stars, angels, whatever, there is no greater drama ever enacted in human history than the drama displayed on that table right there. No greater drama ever. No greater drama than God himself coming to earth, taking on flesh, and dying for you and for me. So you go ahead and create the drama in your mind right now. What you would have God do for you, if you could ask him to do anything, what dramatic thing would it be that you would ask him? But but whatever it is, I'm telling you, nothing tops this drama right here. And if you don't realize that this is the greatest drama ever, then you don't really understand this table and Jesus and the cross and what that's all about. As you and I wait for the Lord living out and living in the reality of what he has already made possible for us, that's all the drama that we need. That's just about all the drama that we can handle. But more importantly, as we live out and live in the reality of what he has made possible, we will be most effective while we wait for him. And so I want us to talk about that drama this morning, the drama that's called repentance. Look again, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's it. That's his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now imagine with, if you will, with great longing in your heart, if I walked up these steps one Sunday and I stood here and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. (laughs) You are dismissed. That was John's message and it was short, but it made him a star. 
The message caused quite a stir in Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas, and people flocked to hear John preach this message. And when the message that John was preaching of repentance penetrated their hearts, then people were being baptized by him. So why was this simple message, why was it so dramatic and effective? Here's why. Because true repentance, true repentance carries with it the possibility of complete change. Complete change. And any message that offers complete change, that's dramatic. Hollywood knows that this is true. Because if complete change were not dramatic, millions and millions of people would not watch television shows where obese people become thin, where dilapidated houses are turned into showplaces, where unattractive people are turned into beautiful people. Dramatic change, complete change, it is high drama. And that's what repentance offers to us. Repent, as used by John here, means a radical change of mind and heart that leads to a complete turnabout in life. The famous theologian B.B. Warfield defines it as the inner change of mind which regret induces and which itself induces a reformed life. The Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith defines repentance as a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So you and I combined all of these definitions and the little nuance of difference between them. And we began to look for true repentance in our lives. That means that you and I must look for and find in our life radical change. Where is the radical change? It means that you and I must look for and find in our lives a complete turnaround. We're going in a completely new direction, doing completely different things than we did before we repented. It means that you and I must be turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. It means that you and I must be looking for and finding in our lives true grief, grief over our sin. It means that we've got to look for and find in our lives hatred, hatred of the sin that so offends our God, who is so great and so good, so glorious and so gracious, our sin offends Him. And we should hate it because of that. All of these characteristics, they mark true repentance. And they require that repentance be, for you and for me, PCA people, more than a theological proposition or a theological concept. Repentance, when it's real and when it's true, has got to affect our emotions, our mind, and our will. Luke gives us a picture of the emotion 
of repentance. When he tells us the story about that woman who came to the dinner party where Jesus was attending, she found out he was there. And this woman was a notoriously sinful woman in that town. But she came to the dinner. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And her tears wet his feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. This woman knew that she was sinful. And she believed that Jesus could do something about her sin and so she came to him and she wept in sorrow for her sin. And Jesus forgave her. The emotion of the heart has got to be part of true repentance. Repentance must also change our minds as well. It's probably easier to illustrate that by seeing what repentance is not. When Saul was king of Israel, the prophet Samuel and God expressly asked him not to do a certain thing. But Saul did the very thing that God had commanded him not to do, which means that he sinned. When that sin was discovered, this was Saul's response. I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Oh, that Saul would have put a period there. But Saul did not put a period there. He kept talking. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Translation, it's not my fault, Lord. I didn't want to do it. The people, they made me do it. But that's in our blood, isn't it? That kind of response. What did Adam say in the garden when the Lord came to him? Adam, did you eat? Why did you eat from that tree that I forbid you to eat the fruit? And what was Adam's response? You know, you know what Adam's response was. Lord, the woman you gave me, she made me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. (laughs) You know, Lord, it's not my fault. If you had not created Eve and given her to me, I would not be a sinner. So you see, in addition to our hearts and our emotions, our scheming, plotting minds must be broken as well. The famous Puritan pastor and theologian Thomas Watson, in his classic book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he writes about how a truly repentant soul makes the worst of their sins. Oh, terrible. But the hypocrite tries to put them in the best light. He says they do not deny they are sinners, but they do what they can to lessen their sins. And so when you and I are using our minds to strategize our defense, then you know that you have not yet truly repented. Watson also writes, when men commit sin, they are the devil's servants. When they plead for their sin, they are the devil's attorneys. Wow. Not to put too fine a point on it. But think of that. When we defend our sin, we are acting as attorney, a defense attorney for Satan and for his ways. All of our being must be involved in repentance. Emotions, mind, and will. Additionally, You getting all this? Repentance has got to be far-sweeping, 
far-sweeping. Repentance can't be contained to one moment in time. Yeah, I repented back in 1972. No. Repentance looks backward and it looks forward. It looks backward at the life already lived, the moment already gone by, and when it looks back, the repentant heart and the repentant mind is grieved, grieved by the sin, sorry for it, and for all the devastation that it, ca- that, that it caused. But then the repentant heart looks forward to the next moment and the next moment and the moment after that and the moment after that, and they look forward to those moments with a sincere genuine, authentic, earnest determination, I will break with that sinful behavior. That sinful behavior in my life, no more. And so the repentant heart looks forward to godly behavior, to better behavior. Look in verse 8. John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit, present tense, ongoing reality. It's something that we are required to do all of our lives. And when repentance is real, when it's alive in us and not some dead stick, when it's alive, when it's real, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to bloom with fruit. We've talked about some of that already. But this is what should really arrest our attention. To whom does Jesus address these words, produce fruit, in keeping with repentance? He addresses them to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. They had come along with all the other crowds of people to the desert to see what John was up to, what all the commotion was about. And if it would benefit them, maybe they would just get on board with it. John addresses his words to these men who were holding on to and hoping in a theological proposition, which was true, but it wasn't changing their hearts. What's that truth? Look in verse 9. John tells them, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can rise up children for Abraham. See, these men believed what was true. They believed what was true, and that's not the problem. Because it was absolutely true, absolutely true that God had entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. Because he is a God of love, because he is a God of justice, because he wanted to do something about sin. He entered into covenant relationship with Abraham. And he made him promises. I will bless you. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. But what these men missed was that Abraham entered into that covenant relationship with God through faith. Romans 3.21 tells us that the law and the prophets bear witness to faith. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe and also the father of those who follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. So please know this. No theological concept can save you. Only faith in the God who is the reality behind the concept will save you. Here's what may be our problem. I think we believe that Pharisees are a relic from the past, from bygone days. We don't believe that Pharisees can be and are alive and well in our churches today. Because if we believe that, we would be looking for the Pharisee around us 
But more importantly, we would be looking for the Pharisee in us. He's there. He's lurking. You know, evangelical Christians in general, but PCA people, PCA people. Did y'all know we're PCA? We got a lot of visitors this morning. We're PCA. We thrive on theological propositions. We do. We love them. Because we believe that Scripture is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. That's what we believe. And it is true. And since we believe that, we study the Word, we dissect it, we parse it, we expound it, we debate it, and we defend it. And surely, the people who are at the very best at doing that, and the most zealous to do it, they must be the most holy. They must be the closest to God. Well, I'm telling you, the Pharisees did all that. They did all of that. And there are striking similarities between Pharisees and evangelical Christians. The name Pharisee means separatist. And the Pharisees Uh, had their history in a group that preceded them, and they called themselves the pious, the saints. And they opposed everything. They refused to adopt anything about their culture or the customs of their days. They separated themselves completely, would have nothing to do with those heathen sinners who they derisively dubbed the people who do not know the law. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't contaminate or defile themselves. They rigorously attempted to apply the law to their everyday life. They strove to never be naughty and always be nice. That's all good, right? It's all good. It's all God-honoring to live that kind of life. Well, not really, as it turns out. Because if that way of thinking and that way of living were all right, I don't think that John would say here and Jesus would say afterward to those men who live this way, you are a brood of vipers. Ooh, (laughs) not very nice from a loving Jesus. Brood of vipers. John lived in the desert and he had seen plenty of vipers because that's where vipers lived. And he knew that they were small, but they were very deceptive. Because vipers... They can, they can make themselves look like a dead stick. Oh, that's not a viper. That's a dead stick. But then the viper goes, it springs. It attacks. And it latches on. Those little vipers were deceitful people. And so it was with the Pharisees. They were deceiving themselves. Believing they can live the way they live and still get to God. They were deceiving other people, saying, this is how you must live if you want to get to God. They believed that defining and debating and defending theological concepts could save them without repentance. But without repentance and faith, theological concepts have no power to transform us or to draw us near to God. And so though they studied all these theological propositions, they were far from God. And so what does John say to them? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a simple, dramatic message. Change is possible, but it only happens when we repent. And it only happens by the grace of God. John tells those listening to him, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. And When scripture uses that phrase near or at hand, it uses it in two ways. 
It's near spatially, close to you. It's near chronologically as well, in time. In time and space, the Lord's return is near. See, because of God's grace, Jesus came near. And because God is a God of grace, He brings His kingdom to us, and He doesn't require that we go out and search for it on our own. Because God is gracious, He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We cannot go from being naughty to nice on our own. Now, that's a great thing to repeat. I'll say it again, then you're going to say it. We cannot go from being naughty to nice on our own. You ready? We cannot go from naughty to nice on our own. And so, because that's true, Jesus came near. And the Apostle John says that he came near full of grace, full of grace and truth. Grace means that God is not making a list and checking it twice. It means that God is not just giving to the nice first and withholding from those who are naughty. Grace means that God gives us freely what Jesus paid for on the cross. And here's the good news, more good news for you this morning. No matter how bad we believe our sins are, who believes their sins are bad? I believe that. No matter how bad we believe them to be, unlimited mercy and forgiveness is available in Jesus. That's an even better thing to repeat. Unlimited mercy and forgiveness is available in Jesus. Now you say that. Unlimited mercy and forgiveness is available in Jesus. So, why not repent? God has put himself under an eternal obligation to forgive and welcome into his arms the repentant sinner. He must do it. If you repent, God must receive you. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied God's perfect and holy justice. God said, the guilty can't go free. That's what he said. Sin must be paid for. God said so. Jesus paid the price required. So now, by his own promise, because the requirements have been fulfilled, by his own promise, God is obligated to forgive and listen. Because God is loving, he is pleased to forgive us and to adopt us as his sons and daughters. So, why not repent? The kingdom of heaven is near. Spatially, Jesus is near. He's here among us and dwelling us. Chronologically, the time is near. And that's what you and I are reminding each other of, isn't it? During this Advent season, Jesus is coming again. And people need to be made right with God before that event. Look in verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Look in verse 12. Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now here's the part of the sermon where you're going to think you're in a Baptist church. Because John is talking about hell. And if hell were not a reality, if hell were not a reality, Jesus would not have 
had to come to our rescue. What is it that Jesus is rescuing us from? He's rescuing us from eternal separation from God. Because that's really what hell is. You and I and every person made in the image of God, we were created to be in union with God. To have a union and communion with Him. And to experience His glorious presence. That's what we are created for. And to be denied that is an unimaginably horrible condition. We can't even guess at it. Because God is present with us here in this world through His Spirit that indwells His people. God is present here with us through common grace. God tells us, Scripture tells us, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. That is God's common grace. The most avowed, God-hating, God-denying atheist has no clue what it means to live separated from God. Because that person is surrounded by the goodness of God and the grace of God, if only as a byproduct of the light of God and the life of God and the Spirit of God in others. They may withhold themselves from God, but God has not withheld Himself from them. Jesus has come near to rescue us from an eternity separated from Him. Separated from everything that is God. Light, love, life, compassion, mercy. There is not a hint of it in hell. An existence with no light. No love. Not even a hint of it. No mercy. Not a shred of compassion. Not one drop of water for the one dying of thirst. Not one crumb for the one starving. No hint of mercy. John Calvin writes this of the eternal fire. Let us lay aside the speculations by which foolish men weary themselves to no purpose. And satisfy ourselves with believing that these forms of speech denote, in a manner suited to our feeble capacity, a dreadful torment which no man can now comprehend and no language can express. That's hell. It isn't fashionable to talk about hell anymore, really. And people say, well, that's not really a good reason for heaven. Hell is not a good reason for heaven. But John preached about it. And Jesus preached about it. Such was their desire to spare people from the unfathomable misery of it. So who am I to withhold that message? You know what I used to worry about? I used to worry about being hip and cool. I don't, remember, I don't worry about that anymore. I'm not saying I ever was. I'm just saying I don't worry about it anymore. 
And I would rather that you and everybody else think, oh, Craig, he's just a relic from the past. And I've been called that. An antique, you know, talking about hell and all that stuff. Not very vogue these days. But I don't care. I would rather be deemed that than to withhold this message from you. And here's the message. If you have not repented, turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus and embrace him by faith as your Savior, hell will be a reality of you for you. So please, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now those of you who are here this morning who have repented, and it's probably most of you, keep repenting. Join me in that. Let's keep repenting of our sins. Because you know why? We don't want to waste the time that God has left to us, do we? He's given us this time while we wait for His return and we don't want to waste it. So realize this this morning, that your repentance, your repentance is vital to the growth of the kingdom of God. It is. Your repentance is vital to the growth of the kingdom of God because repentant people If that's you, you are right with God on a daily basis in your heart and in your mind and in your will. When you repent, you are right with God. And all the fruit that accompanies repentance, it's yours to enjoy. If you're living a life of repentance, the peace is yours that results from being right with God and feeling right with God. The guilt is gone. The burden is lifted. And you feel free and light to live and to speak for God if you are a repentant person. You you never have to say, well, I'm the last person who really should say anything, particularly about the gospel, because, well, I know my life right now. And more importantly, they know my life right now. And so there a kingdom building moment has flown out the window because you're not a repentant person. Repent so that you will have the spiritual, mental, and emotional health and strength you need to be about building the kingdom of God so that you can tell others about peace True peace, peace that they can have with God and with others, that it is not achieved by being good enough, for goodness sake, so that God will reward you. It's about obeying the command, repent, and live a life of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would cause us to be Repentant people. People who do more than say, I'm sorry. And then rush out to do the same thing again, over and over and over again. Make us truly repentant. Father, give us the emotion of it. Where there's no grief in our hearts for the sin that we have committed and the devastation it has caused. Lord, show us how grievous sin is. Devastating to others, but most importantly, to you, against you, and you only have we sinned, Lord. 
soften our hearts so that we truly grieve over that sin and are sorry for it. And Lord, bring our, our wills and our, our minds into it as well. Father, help us give up this constant need to justify ourselves and explain away our sins or to blame others for it. Help us to own it. Help us to stop being defense attorneys for sin and for Satan. Lord, help us to keep very short accounts with you so that we are in a beautiful place of spiritual health and nearness to you so that we are eager to be about the work that you've given us to do, which is the will of the one who sent you. Lord, make that the food that sustains us in our lives, doing your will, more and more of it, every day. Lord, we have a few moments as we wait for the children to to come over and come to the table of the Lord. And so, Lord, in these moments of quiet reflection and meditation, pray that you would be work at work within us. Even in this moment, Lord, causing us to repent. There are those here, Lord, this morning who have never repented of their sins and received you as your Lord and sa- as their Lord and Savior. I pray that in these moments when I'm not filling up all the verbal space, but in the silence of the next few moments, that your spirit would be at work in their hearts. That the truth that we've heard this morning would penetrate into unbelief and bring faith and belief. So now we wait on you, Lord, to do your work in us. And Lord Jesus, now as we come around this table, remind us that this is what you had to do to make repentance possible for us. Because you want us to be made new. You make us new creatures because you want us to have reformed lives. Because you want to rescue us from an eternity separated from you. Your heart, Lord, is that we would be with you forever and ever. And so you did this for us. Your life for ours. So, Lord, make us repentant people. Help us to live in and live out the reality that you have made possible for us if we will receive it by faith. If we'll receive you by faith. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.